right, so before I get, bit, get going in uh, our text today, you probably want to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 52. If you are a kid and you do not have a yellow sheet with you, it would be worth your while to uh, um, get up now and uh, go get one there in the foyer. You can ask your parents to do that, um, or parents, if you actually trust your children to um, walk out the door into the foyers by themselves and come back and return with the yellow sheet in an orderly manner. You can do that as well. So Isaiah chapter 52, we're going to be looking at um, Isaiah 52 verses 7 through 12. Um, Now, here's what we've been doing for the the Advent season. We've been uh, learning four new songs. We've learned three songs and in the Advent season we want to learn Four songs, and they're the servant songs, what, what many Bible students have called the four servant songs that were written and recorded by the prophet Isaiah. And that's been our theme in Advent, the four servant songs. And the fourth song is the magnum opus, if you will. It is the great hymn um, that... I believe the entire book of Isaiah points to, and perhaps we could even argue that the entirety of the the Hebrew Scriptures point to this song. And I'll teach it to you next week. The plan was to learn that song today, but I got so wrapped up in what precedes the song that I thought, you know what, we just... What precedes the song, kind of the prelude to that magnum opus, is in and of itself so glorious and so wonderful that we need to spend some time looking at how Isaiah prepares us for that final song. And so today we are going to be looking not at a servant song, but as a prelude to the the servant song. So I had planned to teach us all the fourth song today. Um, we won't get to that next till next week, so come back next week and you'll learn the final song. We've already, let me just give you a quick review of where we've been. We've already learned three songs, and the first song was the song of justice. How when the servant comes, he is going to restore godly order. And it's not just he's going to right wrongs, which is what we think of when we think of justice, but rather he is going to restore godly order to the way they ought to be. And we discussed one of the big hindrances to restoration of godly order is the problem of sin. And so this servant was going to deal with sin in order to return his people back to what God had intended them to be. So that was the first song. It was the song of justice. The second song was one of anticipation. Um, as we, we see, uh, and, and the mission, perhaps even the song of mission, as we, we learn, what would be the mission of the servant? Well, the servant was going to do a number of different things, but his mission was going to go global. It wasn't a, a mission to a a select group of people, but rather it was a mission that would extend to the coastlands and to the far reaches of the world. That was the second song. And the third song that we learned last week was the song of faithfulness, that the servant would be faithful to what God commanded, even if it brought about negative or uncomfortable um, circumstances. 
He would do what nobody else had done. He would be faithful to the word of God. He would live his life in perfect obedience to God. And this was an important song to learn because so oftentimes we focus on the cross and the death of Christ, but neglect the importance of the life of Christ. And so it is important to, uh, to realize that Christ observed our, or fulfilled all righteousness He died for our sins, but he lived for our righteousness. And that was last week's song. So this week we're going to uh, kind of look at the prelude, what leads up to the final, the magnum opus, the song of suffering. And we'll look at that next week. One of the things um, that we've discussed and has been debated for centuries, and that is who is the servant? Uh, These are the servant songs, and many people have wondered, well, who's the servant? And all sorts of theories have been put forth. Well, the servant is Israel, and uh, well, we see that Israel fails in many of the tasks of the servant, and we'll see that especially next week. We see perhaps the servant is Cyrus, the um, the Persian king, and uh, there's probably a case to be made for that in one, or, in one, at least one of the texts, the text we looked at last week. But again, Cyrus doesn't fill that. Some people have said that the servant is the prophet Isaiah, but it's certainly not the prophet Isaiah. And, and so we've looked and there's all sorts of discussions. Who is the servant? And we've explored a few of those, um, of those, uh, um, those arguments. But I'm going to settle it today. Very simply, I don't think it requires a lot of uh, theological debate as to who the servant is. Because the New Testament authors are very clear as to who the servant is. They identify Jesus as the servant. And you'll see that in Matthew chapter 8, verse 17, in a variety of scriptures, when they are quoting the servant songs and they say, or Jesus does something and they say, this was to fulfill what Isaiah the prophet said. And then they quote one of the servant songs. Jesus is the servant according to the Holy Spirit inspired authors of scripture. I don't know why we debate it. I don't know why I spent three weeks talking about the debate, but I did. And as if that is not enough for you, the clincher of all of this is Jesus would say that he is the servant. Not he didn't say it directly, but here's what he did say. All scripture is about me. He says that in Luke chapter 24, a couple of times. He says it in John chapter 5. All of scripture points to me. I'm the fulfillment of everything. So I don't know if Jesus says it, it's probably good enough that to end all debate, when we're talking about the servant, we are talking about the person, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the one then. He provides a very solid answer. The Holy Spirit inspired authors of Scripture say Jesus is the, the servant. Jesus said, yes, I'm the servant. Debate is over. So. Let me give you a little bit of a prelude then or a preview as to where I hope to go today. I'm calling this the song of Advent. Our fourth candle today then would be the Advent candle um, that speaks of the coming of the king to his people. It announces our, our this this prelude to the fourth servant song announces the arrival of God to his people. And not just that God is coming and arriving and 
dwelling with his people, but he comes for a specific purpose, not just to hang out, but to bring salvation. The Lord arrives to bring his salvation. He arrives to this beleaguered people to give them what they are incapable of obtaining for themselves. And folks, this is the purpose of Advent. The purpose of Advent is to recognize that God sent his son for what purpose? Not just to be our homeboy or our buddy, but to purchase salvation. Next week is kind of surprising when we talk about the the final song, because the final song talks about the means by which the servant secures that salvation. And it blows everybody's mind because it's totally unexpected. Nobody sees, everybody believes that, okay, well, when the servant comes, he's going to do all of these things. But how he does it catches everybody off guard. So that's um, our goal today, to look at this song of Advent, how God arrives to his people, comes to his people, and brings that which they are incapable of obtaining on their own. So let's go ahead and let's... um, Read our, follow along as I read our text today. This is Isaiah chapter 52. I'll read verses 7 through 12. Listen to God's inerrant word. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out in haste, you shall not go in flight, for the Lord will go before you, and God, the God of Israel, will be your rear guard. So as we begin looking at this, it begins with an announcement of the coming or the advent of God to his people. It is here a song of joy about the king's coming. And one of the things I want you to note, maybe one of those little subtle things that I think beautifies um, the scripture, is the flow or the building, uh, how how this hymn is structured because it begins with a solo voice, the voice of a of a herald coming across the mountains, declaring good news. And then it builds to an ensemble of watchmen who now turn to the city and they join their voices with that of the herald and begin to proclaim the good news to the city. And then the whole entire city and even the ends of the earth and perhaps even all of the cosmos hear the watchman's song and they then break forth in joy and in singing. It's a beautiful, beautiful structure. So let's begin looking at this single solo voice, the voice of the herald. How lovely are the feet of him who brings good news. It is here then the picture of a messenger running across the mountains, running across the field to bring news from the battlefield. What is the news? Has the victory been won? Has there been defeat? What is happening to bring us news from the 
from the battlefield. The besieged city is waiting the word. Is it defeat? Is it victory? What will the herald say? And so the, the picture then is of the messenger drawing near. But um, John Oswald in his very fine commentary says that the, the, the herald is not so much running across the fields as he is dancing across the fields. He is um, bringing, he is coming with dancing that the king is coming. The king is coming to reign. A new era is beginning. Make way for the king. And it's almost a herald is dancing at joy that the king is arriving. And he comes with a threefold message. The herald comes with a threefold message. And the first thing he declares is peace. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. What is amazing about this is that the king is coming. And he is not coming in warfare, but rather he is coming in peace. This should be good news to all of us. For when we talk, and we'll talk a little bit about this, that the king comes and he's going to bring salvation and he is going to bring forgiveness of sins. We need to ask ourselves, what are we saved from? I think that's an important question. From what are we saved? And of course, the obvious answer is we're saved from sin. But a more basic primary answer is we're saved from God himself. Because if God comes in wrath, who will stand? The herald comes dancing across the field saying, No, the king is not coming in wrath. He is coming in peace. This is good news. He is not coming for you. He is coming in peace. And so the first word here, or the first part of the message, is that the king is not coming in warfare but he is coming in peace. He also comes with goodness or he comes with good news. And I want us to understand that here, this Hebrew word for good has more than a moral or aesthetic sense. It it can bring, when we talk about good, oftentimes we talk about good in a moral sense, a good versus bad type of thing. But here, the idea and that Hebrew word for for good is a very rich word because it can refer not only to moral good, that, that which is um, the opposite of bad or evil, but it has a, a broader, a, a fuller meaning, and it, it refers to that which fulfills its purpose. And a great example of that is, remember when, when God created all things, how did he create them? I mean, I know he created them by his word, but what, was, what did he call them when he was done creating them? They were good. Well, why were they good? It wasn't, it's not so much that they were good as opposed to bad. It's not like he says, well, at least it's not defective. It's good in that they fulfill all that I've designed them to do. So when the sun and the moon and the stars are created, they are good. Not because they lack any defect, but because they do exactly what God They fulfill exactly what God had created them to do. 
And so when they eat of the fruit of the trees that are good, the fruit is good. Why is it good? It is good because, of course, it is pleasing to the taste and it satisfies and nourishes the body. The fruit is good because it does that or it fulfills that for which it was created. And the king is coming in peace and he is coming with good news. He's coming with goodness. He is coming then to fulfill all of his good purposes. This is good news. And the third message of salvation is that he is coming with salvation. With the coming of the king, with the arrival of the king, salvation will be realized to the people. Under the king's rule, salvation will be realized. Their sins will be atoned for. Their sins will be forgiven. And so I would suggest to you that this is truly good news. This is gospel. Our sins have separated us from God. And in fact, Isaiah says that they grieved his Holy Spirit by their sin. They grieved God's Holy Spirit and God became their enemy. I want you to know that's a bad place to be. For who can save you? If God is your enemy, who can save you? Who can rescue you from the hand of a wrathful God? The good news is that our sin has separated us from God and so that even God becomes our enemy. But with the coming of the king comes a new message. A message to which all of God's previous acts have been pointing that our sins will be eradicated so that God will no longer be our enemy. We will be restored to fulfilling the purpose for which we were created and all of this will be done through the work of the servant who we will see I'm glorified next week. This is good news. This is a prelude to what is, a, what is going to take place in Isaiah chapter 52, verses 13 through Isaiah 53. And then finally, the, the herald proclaims, your God reigns. That is, that God is the ruler. He is the king over all. He holds all things in his hand. History belongs to God. Creation belongs to him because he made all things. He is the lawmaker. He instructs us in our ways. He is the commander in chief. He is over all of the hosts of heaven. He is even over the wicked. He is protector. He is savior of his people. Our God reigns. There is nowhere in the universe where God is not king. And the herald comes skipping across the the hills with this news that God is not coming in wrath. That God has come to fulfill what He created you for and that God is coming to save you from your sins. Our God reigns. And He is now. The herald is anticipating that God is coming in person to reign over his people, to destroy the work of his enemies, and now prepare yourselves for the arrival of the king. That's the basic song of the watchman, if you will. And it's a solo voice. It is a single voice singing. It is a single voice. And I don't know if the watchman actually 
hear his voice, but they see him dancing. They know the news is good. And now we see the watchman. This picture is the watchman on the wall and they're looking out and they would be the first to see the herald dancing across the hills, hearing his message. There the, the watchman then see that the, that the herald is coming. He's dancing. This is good news. They hear his voice. And so now all the watchmen on the wall pick up the refrain. They pick up and they sing in unison to the city. Now it is, uh, we see an ensemble of watchmen pick up the joyful hymn and they begin to shout together that he is not, that the king is not just returning to a place, but he is returning to a people. And his, the king, his return is not simply a, a, re, a solo return, but rather he is coming with his entire plan of salvation. That is, when he arrives, he's not just going to come and sit on a throne and be gawked at. He comes with a plan. He comes with purposes. We might think of it, maybe this is a little defective, but we might think of it in, in this way. When we elect a president, to the, the president then goes and occupies the White House, but we don't elect a president just to go sit in a big White House in Washington, D.C. Washington, Rather, that president will come with all of his or her purposes and plans and agenda. When we elect a president to the White House, they arrive with all of their plans, all of their agenda, all of their purposes. And when God arrives, he is not just coming to sit on the throne to be stared at or even simply to be worshipped, but to enact his agenda and his plans and his purposes. And so God is coming. The herald comes and brings the, um, the message. The watchmen hear it. They turn to the city and they begin to sing. And now there is this mass choir. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. The Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. There is now a call for all of the people in the beleaguered city. Um, this broken down city is now called to sing. people of God are called to rejoice. They are called to sing. There are two imperatives in this passage, and that is, first of all, break forth, and number two, sing joyfully. Break forth in song and sing joyfully. Why? Because God is about to act. So we shouldn't be surprised that at the birth of Christ, all of the cosmos began to sing out. The angelic choirs um, filled the cosmos with song. When Mary was informed of the birth of her son. She broke out in song. When Elizabeth was told about the, what, what God was doing, she broke forth in song. When Zechariah heard what was going forth, he broke forth in song. The angels sang, the people sang. When they hear of God's redemptive acts, they sing. It's no surprise then that the Christian faith is a singing faith. We sing our faith. It's a good thing, and we should sing joyfully of our faith. 
Why? Because God is coming and he is coming to fulfill his purposes in the earth and we are grateful that his purposes are not one to destroy his people but to save his people. So the first thing that we hear is there is a call to sing and the second reason is the reason to sing. Why should we sing? Well, we should sing because God is, a redeem, is redeeming His people. He is bringing forgiveness of sins, restoration of relationship with God, removal of despair. The presence of God will be in their midst. And so we see the first solo voice dancing across the hilltops, declaring that our God reigns. The watchmen pick it up and they sing to the beleaguered city. And now the beleaguered city lifts up their voices in song and the realization that God has come to save them. They have felt God's wrath. They have felt God's judgment. And now they wonder, has God abandoned us? And the herald comes across the field saying, no, your God has not abandoned you. He is now coming with the means to save you from the very thing that brought your judgment. One of the things we see in verse 10 then is God's might. How will God deliver his people? The Lord has bared his holy arm. God is going to deliver them by his holy arm, which, by the way, we're going to talk about this next, next week. I know I keep talking about next week, but like I said, this whole this message actually points to next week. God bears his holy arm. We're actually going to learn that the servant is the holy arm of God who brings about this salvation. It's awesome. The same arm of the Lord that brought judgment is the arm of the Lord that will bring victory. It is this arm of the Lord that is going to accomplish these spectacular events. But here's what I want to pause and get across to you. The Lord has bared his holy arm. And all the earth will see the salvation of our God. It is important for us to recognize that it is God who performs these works. It is God who saves. Salvation is of the Lord. That comes straight out of Psalm chapter 3, verse 8, and Jonah chapter 2, verse 9. Salvation is from the Lord. He alone is qualified. We are blind, deaf, mute, and dead. And entirely incapable of saving ourselves. But salvation belongs to the Lord. One of the most, I think, clear passages of text is out of Acts chapter 13. You may remember about a month, a month and a half ago, we were in Acts chapter 13 in this passage of text. This is Paul's first recorded sermon. It is near the end of his uh, first missionary journey. So it is an important sermon because it is Paul's first sermon that Luke records for us. 
And I want to highlight Paul's sermon because I think it's relevant to our text today. Paul is in the synagogue and the synagogue leader asks him, Brethren, if you and your companions have a word of encouragement, would you stand up and and speak to us today? And so Paul stands up and this is what he begins to say. Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. Listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers. Note, God chose our fathers. It was God who created us. It is God who made us. It is God who did this. And made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. How did they become great in the land of Egypt? God did it. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out of it. How did they get out of Egypt? What army did they raise What militia did they form to get themselves out of Egypt? The answer is none. God did it. And for about 40 years, he, God, put up with them in that wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them the land as an inheritance. Who destroyed the enemies? God destroyed their enemies. And all this took about 450 years. After that, God gave them judges. God gave them Samuel. God gave them Saul. God gave them David. God raised up those kings and God set those kings down. And God brought forth Jesus Christ, the Savior. Just like he promised. And then at the end of his sermon, he says this. But God raised Jesus from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who'd come with him. And we bring to you good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as it is written in the second psalm. I want you to understand that God, from eternity past, planned salvation. It was God who chose the people. It is God who raised up deliverance. It is God who delivered. It is God who brought forth Jesus. This is what Isaiah is saying. Salvation is from God. Let me just add a short footnote into that book of Acts. You might say, well, what about me? What, part, what role do I play? In that salvation. I'm glad you asked. Because man plays a very important part. In this salvation. You put Jesus to death. That's your role. In in the whole scheme of salvation. Paul Paul says. God chose Abraham. God brought up kings. God put down kings. God brought forth Jesus. He was innocent. You put him to death. Even though you knew better. You kill the Lord of glory. That's your role. And God raised him up from the dead. It has been famously stated that the only thing that we contribute to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. And that is so outlined in Paul's first sermon. God did this. God did this. God did this. You killed him. God even used your wicked, evil ways. To bring about his glorious purposes, you did not 
derail the plan of God to bring salvation. Why? Because salvation belongs to the Lord. And I bring you today good news that salvation belongs to the Lord, that He alone can save. said that we are blessed that God does not, is not coming in wrath. God not only delivers us from wrath, for God delivers us from His wrath. It is God who brings salvation. God fulfills His purposes. Let me ask you, as we celebrate the Advent, the coming of Christ, the birth of Christ in two days, Christmas Day, the birth of Christ, what role did you play in the birth of Christ? How did you contribute to the, to the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us? This is God's uh, salvation belongs to the Lord. It is by His mighty, gracious, merciful act. If you are a Christian here today, you are saved because salvation belongs to the Lord. We are the recipients of His gracious work. This is, I, this is why the herald is dancing. He's not just running across the fields. He's dancing across the fields because he has an understanding that salvation belongs to the Lord. Victory belongs to God. We are saved from God's wrath. Because we are saved from God's wrath. We are the recipients of His work. Salvation then. God has bared His holy arm. We're going to see next week that the servant is the holy arm of the Lord by which He saves us. And our prelude, this song, concludes then with an admonition. And it is a rather complex passage of text. I won't delve too far into it, but let me summarize it like this. Do not place, the admonition is this, do not place confidence in anything else to save you. If you, to hope in yourself, to worship yourself is all vanity. To seek Hope or salvation outside of the holy arm of God who is doing all of these things to seek salvation in anything outside of the mighty arm of the Lord is vanity and it will fall apart. So the admonition at the end of this is the mighty arm of God will save us. Depart from everything else. Depart from every other philosophy or vain idea of how we might save ourselves. If I'm a good person, or I don't believe God, or any of these other things that you might have been told, salvation belongs to God. Place confidence not in yourself, not in your goodness, not in your neighbor, not in your faithful observance of holy days and coming on Christmas Eve. By the way, we have a Christmas Eve service. And none of those things are going to save you. Salvation belongs to God. So we'll conclude um, briefly with this. This is not the final song. This is a prelude to the servant song. It is the song of suffering. Because the way the servant, the arm of the Lord, is going to save his people is surprising. It is not through his conquering power, but through his submission and suffering. It is a surprising conclusion. 
How is God going to save His people? How is God going to save the nations? How is God's salvation going to reach across oceans? How is the whole earth to be filled with the glory of God? How is that going to happen? That will be addressed in the final song. But I'll conclude with this. How lovely then are the feet of Him who brings good news. The King is coming. This is the Advent season. The King is coming. In two days we celebrate uh, the arrival of the King who comes to bring his salvation. I loved how some of the, the, I think it was the second or third song we sang, the second song, how it connects Advent, the coming of Christ, with the final work of Christ. I think that's so important that we cannot separate the coming of Christ from his final work on the cross. These two things are are connected and they are so important to us. So if you will stand, um, we will uh, pray and we will sing our final song. I think we have a couple of announcements as well.